0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome to a new hour dedicated to the notion of enlightenment. An hour for inquiry and reflection, all in an effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. An hour devoted to exploring the edge of consciousness and all that is implied thereof. An hour that recognizes the nature of the subjective experience as being at least as important as the objective reality we reside within. Indeed, an hour for the open-minded, willing to examine their deepest beliefs, an hour designed to help us go further inward, and perhaps challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowledge as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, each week I read a few of your letters as our way of paying respect to the importance you play and helping us to shape our show and improve it in every way. Last week our guest was animal communicator Carol Devereaux. Unfortunately, we had some serious technical problems, and the station went dark for about 15 minutes. Once we were back on the air, we lost our guest for a few more times, so it was a real roller coaster ride. Andrew wrote... Too bad about the technical problems. I was really interested in this show. This was my first time tuning in. I hope that kind of thing doesn't happen often. Well, actually, Andrew, I think in the time that I have been a host at Hay House Radio, there have only been a couple of hiccups and none that lasted as long as last week. All of us at Hay House do apologize for that inconvenience. Lynn wrote, I have become a more conscious person after reading and practicing your example in my day-to-day living since reading Choices and Illusions last fall. Being on a fixed income with disability, I am unable at this time to be able to purchase any of your programs, so I really appreciate the ongoing help with your free downloads. Thank you so much for being out there, Eldon. I really do appreciate what you have to teach, including hearing from you through your newsletter. Well, thank you, Lynn, and I'll use this as my segue to remind all of you of the free Intertalk MP3 programs that we make available as a part of our own Pay It Forward program. You will find many of uh, them at my website, so just check it out. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the free newsletter. Patricia wrote, Your provocative enlightenment show is always fascinating and informative. You do help to separate the wheat from the chafe. Loretta wrote, your show has encouraged me to be much more open-minded. Jennifer wrote, I love listening to your radio show each week. At first I was skeptical, but now I won't miss a show. Eldon is an old softy, and Ravinder is wonderful also. Love, love, love the show and inner talk. Okay, now wait a minute. The softy stuff is getting out of hand. That's that's all there is to it. But you're absolutely right, Jennifer. Ravinder is wonderful. Thanks for your letter.
0: And you are a softy. The secret Dulcy, is out.
1: Quiet. <laughs> Dulcy wrote, you have a wonderful balance of scientist and healer in your voice. When I heard you on a house, I look forward to reading and hearing more of your work. Daisy wrote, Hello, this is my first time in your chat room. In any chat room, I can't think of a better form in which to start. I have so much admiration for E.T. and provocative enlightenment. Well, thank you, Daisy, and enjoy the chat room. There are some truly fine people that join us every week. Finally, Rachel wrote, Hi, Eldon. I really wanted to let you know that I am loving What Does It Mean, just as I have your other books. Your experiences and love for animals affect my spirit the most because I feel the same love and connection to them. I am, oh, excuse me, and I love that you too believe that they understand. They most certainly do, so thank you, thank you, thank you for being you and for sharing your brilliance with us. Well, wow, you know, the only thing I can say to that, Rachel, is thank you for your feedback and support. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to elden at com. Or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave comments on my website. I do try to read all of your letters. Obviously, we cannot get them all on the air, but they do impact our programming. I highly value your input. So once again, thank you, all of you, for your feedback and comments. Now to today's show, the biology of the near-death experience. Over the course of the past three years, I've spent quite some time and money, I might add, investigating the evidence for life beyond the grave. One of the tools that I have used to do this has been my radio show on two different networks. We have interviewed the father of NDEs, father in quotation marks, Raymond Moody, and a host of other guests that have addressed both the near-death experience and the shared death experience, and the list is long. Without exception, they have offered their stories and evidence suggesting that the near-death experience is valid evidence of life after death. Okay is it indeed or is it possible that there are other explanations i have called upon many scientists for today's show asking them all about both sides of the equation we have discussed some of the alternative explanations like the oxygen deprivation notion with the best in the field such as dr john l turner neurosurgeon from hilo hawaii dr turner informed us that these so-called alternatives were not likely and he explained why Still, Dr. Turner is a friend of mine, and I know that he, he investigates like a true scientist, and therefore, the book is not closed. Some of the best evidence in my mind that these experiences are not just an artifact of a dying brain come from the stories that cannot be explained quite that simply. Take the story Dr. John Lerma shares about the person who dies and, during death, experiences a standard sort of NDE, but with some verifiable caveats, such as his discovery of a quarter resting high on top of hospital equipment in the room. As Dr. Lermer tells a story, when he heard about this dated quarter, with some doubt in his mind, he returned to the room, procured a stool, thereupon stood upon it, in order to inspect the top of the equipment, and there he found the exact quarter. Is there another explanation for events of this kind? Let's assume for a moment that the brain is producing these events, just as with dreams. How do we account for events such as that described by Lerma? There are basically eight theories dealing with NDEs. They are, in summary, the dying brain theory. That's simply that all brains die in the same way, and that is why all NDEs have essentially the same core elements. The uh, Darwinian theory, which is uh, essentially or goes like this, you know, it's a deliberate ploy by nature to help humans face the inevitable ending of their lives. The hallucination theory. And this uh, some thi- scientists uh, argue that NDEs are just a part of the dying brain and it's all a matter of the endorphins or hormones which act on the central nervous system to suppress pain and produce hallucinations. The temporal lobe theory. NDEs are known to occur in a type of epilepsy associated with damage to the temporal lobe of the brain. And researchers have found that by electrically stimulating this lobe, they can mimic some elements of the NDEs. The lack of oxygen theory. I discussed that earlier. The depersonalization theory. And some argue that, you know, people faced with death depersonalize. It's a psychological term which essentially refers to removing themselves from themselves and thus the floating away from their own bodies that is reported the memory of birth theory you know i find this one a little ridiculous but the theory essentially is a baby being born leaves the womb to travel down a tunnel towards the light and what waits for him in the light is usually a great deal of love and warmth there's my problem because, you know, we won't discuss the smack on the bottom, the cry that is the first thing to suck in that oxygen or that cold outer world or any of that other stuff either. But okay, and then finally the afterlife theory. And here are many leading theorists, including men like Dr. Melvin Morris and more particularly Dr. Kenneth Ring who perhaps did the most to put the subject on the ac- academic map, at least, say, and I'm, I'm going to quote Ring here and set this show up. Quote, any adequate neurological explanation would have to be capable of showing how the entire complex, a phenomena associated with a core experience, that is, the out-of-body state, paranormal knowledge, the tunnel, the golden light, the voice or presence, the appearance of deceased relatives, beautiful vistas, and so forth, would be expected to occur in subjectively authentic fashion as a consequence of specific neurological events triggered by the approach of death. I am tempted to argue, he continues, that the burden of proof has now shifted to those who wish to explain NDEs in this way. Close quote. All right, I think we have set the stage for today's show. Our guest is Dr. Kevin Nelson. He is a professor of neurology at the University of Kentucky, he has devoted more than three decades to the study of near death experiences, and he is the author of the book, The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain A Neurologist's Search for the God Experience. His press copy states that his book is the first comprehensive, empirically tested, and peer reviewed explanation of the biology behind near death experiences. Using brain scans, he has mapped the borderlands of the consciousness, concluding that spirituality is a part of our biology. His book is very well written and, quite frankly, a terrific read. Irrespective of the bias you may have going in, I think you will find this one well worth your time. Okay, let's welcome our guest to Provocative Enlightenment. Welcome, Dr. Kevin Nelson. Well, thank
0: you, Eldon, and I want to thank you for the kind words you had to say about the
1: book. Well, it's a, it is is indeed. I, I, I mean those sincerely. Anyone that listens to me knows that I don't pass out uh, um, platitudes. So it is a great book. It is a great read, and I mean that. Well, but let's do this. We have limited time, and this is uh, one of our favorite subjects around here. Uh, because the NDEs may be among the best or perhaps the worst evidence out there in terms of demonstrating so-called proof, for an afterlife. So let's begin by having you tell us why you chose to investigate NDEs. Well, actually,
0: it came to me when I was a young physician in training. And as a physician, you know, my patients bring me the most important things and including these amazing stories. And when I was training as an intern at the University of New Mexico, I cared for a patient by the name of Joe Hernandez. And one day he brought me a photograph of a remarkable scene that he had painted. And in that scene, he was lying near death in the ICU, and at the foot of his bed was the devil and the Jesus battling for that soul. Well, of course, he, he came to see me after this um, in clinic, so Jesus won the battle there. But I was very curious as to how the mind could be operating and, and working uh, during those very dramatic and important experiences. And I kinda laid that topic aside though as I pursued a more conventional or, or a traditional neurologic career and, and I thought, you know, I've got to go back to this, this is such a compelling and important topic. And so I I read um, Ray Moody's um, Life After Life accounts and, and I must say that I was I was absolutely captivated by them. And you know, when I was reading the account kind of uh Mrs. Martin, who's in the book, and, and she she tells of how she had a cardiac arrest, and and she heard the doctor say um, over the phone that you know i to the other doctor I've killed your patient, Mrs. Martin. But she knew she wasn't dead, and she tried to move, and but couldn't couldn't utter a word or move to let them know that. And I thought to myself as I read it, you know, what natural physiologic process could cause temporary paralysis. And then it occurred to me, it might be the state of consciousness that each one of us enters every night, multiple times, every night of our lives, and that's from consciousness. And so I took that idea and and I pursued it and read more about near-death experience and crafted a research subject looking at how people's brains might work during during those moments of crisis, and, and I came to realize that REM consciousness you know, is, um, is, I think, an important part of how the brain um, can be working during these um, very, very important times.
1: Okay, your research is is largely observation, and you've put that together with a lot of data and charts and tables, Mm -hmm. and so maybe, you know, to introduce our audience, because our lines are already lighting up with phone calls, to to the direction of your conclusion, how about sharing with us the story of Jan? Because no doubt at some point in our conversation, there are going to be questions that, that, uh, that The story of Jan is a good introduction to your theory and research findings as well. So how about sharing that with
0: us? Oh, I must say, you've you've picked a a wonderful story. This is one of the most powerful stories that I've ever heard of in my entire career um, in medicine. Jan was shot and um, had severe internal bleeding. And um, she was rushed to the local hospital um, in shock. That means extremely low blood pressure. She's given medications to help um, sustain her blood pressure, and then she was airlifted to a local trauma unit. And they were giving her pain medications and sedatives, And but her blood pressure was so low she could barely, barely um, provide her brain or any other organ with enough blood flow to sustain life. And she was really on the cusp of consciousness. And when they um, took her to surgery... She was opened literally from stem to stern, all through her abdomen where the bullet had entered and up into the chest cavity. Um, and, But unfortunately, they didn't realize at the time that although she couldn't move, she was fully awake during the, during the surgery. And she had um, awareness during, during surgery. Uh, and she was not able to move, in part because of the paralytic drugs that she'd received, but also because while in shock, people are very feeble and weak. And the doctor um, exposed her heart, um, wanted to make sure that there was no um, blood clot strangling the heart, and um, then the physician massaged her heart. And when the physician massaged her heart, she felt enveloped with a great light, Her mother came to greet her and told her that um, it was not her time. And and then she mercifully lost consciousness right after that.
1: Now, she was feeling pain, correct, Dr. Nelson? Actually, she Hmm. felt
0: some pain. Yes, that's true, Eldon. Particularly when um, they were looking and probing um, for um, bleeding.
1: Um, Right. so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but oh. I want our audience to understand that when you say she's aware, we're not talking about an out-of-body, out-there kind of awareness. She is fully, She is aware, uh, like you or I am, uh, are aware right this moment, but because of the paralytic nature of the drugs, et cetera, she's unable to move, unable to tell the physicians. She is feeling what's going on, and then when the heart is massaged, that's what stimulates what many would say is a a, a near-death kind of experience, although she is not in a, in a technical death situation. Have I got that correct?
0: Oh, you're very close there. She is, you know, very close to death, actually, um, medically um, with her shock. In fact, if they were to give her any more anesthetic, um, it may very well have caused her to go into irreversible shock. I think you've hit upon really what I I thought was a a very telling moment in her experience, and that is massaging the heart. We know, if I can step back and talk about animals for a moment.
1: um, Do, please. That's the next question I have for you. Oh,
0: good. Um, (laughs) If we stimulate the nerve in animals that leads from the heart, we can immediately trigger REM consciousness.
1: This is the vagus nerve you're talking about? The
0: vagus nerve. We can trigger all the important physiologic facets of REM consciousness while the animal is awake. Now, we also know that that can happen in humans. We sometimes stimulate this nerve so that um, we can treat epilepsy. And we know if we do that in the course of treating epilepsy that people will have more REM blending with waking consciousness Another way we know that humans is that if the body attacks the vagus nerve and other nerves that are so um, that are important in regulating the heart and breathing, we know that these people can experience florid intrusions of REM consciousness into waking consciousness. So there's a lot of good reasons to believe that the heart is very important in triggering. REM consciousness, and, and I go into the, in the book, I go into how the heart can do this and, and some of the connections within the brain that allow that, um, but I think it, it's really a very well-established fact that the, the heart nerves can really draw us into REM consciousness.
1: Well, and as you point out in the book, you know, the connection between uh, the brainstem and the heart uh, for all of our functions. I mean, that that is a critical element uh, where I suppose there's probably no greater area of of uh, communication. Uh, particularly if we think of an area of communication that goes on without conscious awareness. But but that said, now, you, you're talking about REM. And we haven't even really introduced REM, rapid eye movement, dream, sleep. But before we do that, uh, so there's, you know, uh, and I, I guess I just have to kind of ask this question. I had a philosophy prof in uh, going way back now. I'm not going to say how many years ago in undergrad that said, uh, you know, St. Paul, uh uh, fell on his road, uh, fell off his, his his donkey. I guess it was on the road to Damascus. Hit his head on a rock. Had a paranoid delusion, and subsequently awoke a Christian evangelist. Your theory seems to me that it would fit with that definition of perhaps what happened to Paul and his religious experience. Right or wrong? Well,
0: as a scientist, I always hate to look back and and speculate what could have happened to historical figures because interpreting their experience you know in the in the in the context that we understand experience today is is very different in fact you just you have to simply reading their writings will will tell you that but i do think that the rem intrusion and, and triggering REM consciousness during crisis it explains a, a great deal about how the brain is working for example REM consciousness really is the consciousness of life uh, of light excuse me um, we in fact name rapid eye movement stage of sleep that state of consciousness after the activation of light so it comes as no surprise that if we 're triggering room consciousness, we should in fact be experiencing light.
1: Yeah, okay, that was a nice duck but i, I i'll let you I, i'll <laughs> let you off the hook on that one listen we we're coming up on a hard break and and uh we basically got about one minute so please in 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 thirty seconds of that um, you you talk about three states of consciousness they 're pretty clear and succinct. Tell us what those three are, and then we'll pick it up at the, uh, when we come back.
0: Well, it's waking consciousness is one, the one that we most of us find ourselves in right now. There, and there are two other states of consciousness with sleep. There's the REM consciousness of sleep, and there's non-REM consciousness. And those are the three, and those are the only three states of consciousness that the neuroscientists recognize
1: for the brain. Okay. And we'll, we'll deal with those three, and and they become important to understanding the biology of a religious experience. Is it possible that these aren't really religious experiences, or is it question-begging because the brain seems to be wired for religious experience? You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. My guest is Dr. Kevin Nelson. We're discussing his book, The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain. We'll be right back after these words from some of our friends. Be sure to stay tuned.
2: Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner Talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new, positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R. T-A-L-K dot com. dot com. Confusion. Deception. Manipulation. Feeling a bit controlled? Lost? Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of choices and illusions. This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self-actualization, filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing with Dr. Kevin Nelson his book, The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan of the show, you will receive special announcements and incentives from time to time as our way of thanking you for your support. I would also like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there, and of course, you can follow me on Twitter. And now let's get back to the show. Before the break, we were discussing with Dr. Nelson the three states of consciousness that neurologists basically look at. Uh, They're being awake, uh, aware, if you will, Uh, REM, which is rapid eye movement or dream sleep, and non-REM consciousness, which is, uh, well, I suppose, I'll let Dr. Nelson pick that up from there. Dr. Nelson, uh, before... Before we get back to the rim, I, w- I want to bring something to everybody's attention here, because at Hay House, there is a uh, a, a definite bias toward uh, spiritual matters, and I don't want your message or your work misunderstood. So I, I'm going to get this stated out. In your epilogue, you state, do these cold, hard clinical facts, that is the biological basis that we're going to get into suck the divine nectar from our spiritual lives? And your answer is, my answer is an emphatic no. Please explain that statement in light of your research, if you will, first, and we'll get back to your research, and and that probably can, you know, uh, diffuse criticism uh, right in the get-go.
0: You know, Eldon, I think you've raised really what is the most fundamental point of this whole book, and that is i am interested in how the brain works not why it works in a particular way but but how so i do the best as we can to separate the how from the why and i think that the why we have spiritual experiences the power to the, the value the personal moving aspects of them is really the most important part of these experiences of course um, but I'm I'm simply interested in, in the mechanical, how these experiences came through and how they come to us. I, I think that um, I can't help but think of the words of my sister-in-law when she was describing her father's near-death experience. And as she turned to me, she, she said, um, Well, Kevin, uh, maybe it doesn't matter what the brain is doing during these experiences, and I think that there is some truth to that because she went on to explain to me the, the very uplifting experience her father had when he was quite ill. And it helped sustain him, and it actually helped sustain her during his illness, and they both found great comfort in it. So I think that it's important not to lose sight of what these experiences mean to us as people.
1: That's a marvelous demarcation—the difference between the how and the why—and and, and and we're not really talking about the why. I mean, we're talking about how the brain produces this today. Yep. Okay, let's let's pick it up. Then we have three states of consciousness, and and what has REM got to do with it? I mean, how did you how did you sort out that REM is somehow tied up with? Uh, OBEs and NDEs.
0: You know, if, when you think about it, why would anyone expect REM consciousness or another stage of sleep to make its way into our consciousness just as we're about to lose consciousness? Um, let me back up just a little bit here, Eldon, and explain consciousness and unconsciousness to a neurologist. Okay, yeah, to a neurologist, consciousness is awareness. The response is being able to respond and know what's going on around us, but also within us. Um, And that's why we say there's three states of consciousness um, for the brain. Now, if the brain does not receive enough blood flow, then what happens is it sees a crisis and it reacts to that crisis as it's about to to lose consciousness. Now, Because of my observations with uh, Dr. Moody's descriptions of of Mrs. Martin, and I suspected that um, the brains and people who have had a near-death experience might somehow be different, Um, we decided to examine, as we can in people, the consciousness switch that's deep in our brainstem world that controls our heart and our lungs and our and and uh, very, our vegetative function, our important vegetative function. And the brain, there's a switch in the brain that moves us between waking consciousness and REM consciousness. That switch is not the same in everyone. In some people, sometimes, not very often, but sometimes, that switch can blend waking and REM consciousness. Most often it will be something like someone will wake up, they'll be wide awake, but they're paralyzed, unable to move because the paralysis that occurs during REM so we don't act out our dreams is manifesting itself, expressing itself during wakefulness. And that's one way in which REM consciousness and waking consciousness can blend. And what we found is that People who have had a near-death experience are much more likely to blend waking and REM consciousness sometime in their life. For reasons that are too involved to go into here, but I I, I write about them in the book.
1: You do a good job in the, the book. And,
0: yeah. The, the, there is reason to believe that during times of heart stoppage um, or even just,
1: Okay, now, you know, one of the objections to uh, this whole idea of, uh, of this being mechanical, biological, is that, uh, you know, these NDEs are not universal. Uh, not everyone that has uh, a near death experience, that is, it maybe even becomes clinically dead on a table uh, uh, by, you know, a moving target definition, I guess, because that's changed some. Uh, has the experience? I think, indeed, it was. It's in the teens, isn't it? Of the the number of people that actually report NDEs that uh, do indeed experience what we call clinical death, or uh, I think it was nineteen percent. Yeah, yeah, it's so roughly
0: twelve percent or so. Is and it twelve? Yeah, okay, that's Dr. Von Lam's um, study, and I think that that's, that's a very good one. And I think it, it was very important to help us show that these experiences are relatively common actually you know 12% to a physician um as an incidence in the general population is very frequent <laughs> that means that we're gonna, <laughs> we're that means we're going to see a lot or people are going to experience it a lot you know it's not universal in terms of not every time people are near death that they ha- they have these kinds of experiences um that's certainly true but they seem to be happening with great regularity and in fact i would I would argue that near death experiences have become if not the dominant, certainly one of the dominant spiritual experiences of our time
1: okay well, now, let me pass this by you because i mean you're you're the guy, I and mean, it would seem to me let's just assume that we had a hundred uh people who experienced a, a, a clinical near death situation and 12 of them had an NDE. Uh, wouldn't maybe an explanation for the majority of the others be the fact that anesthesiologists today do administer specific drugs designed to specifically inhibit memory?
0: Well, there's. Um, if you look at those um, 12, um, you will find that um, oftentimes they do not have medications administered. Um, They may, in fact, have the experience, what we call, in the field, that is, outside the hospital where there's no medical attendance. We certainly Mm -hmm. see a lot of near-death experiences along those lines. Um, When they do happen in the hospital, we find that their experience really doesn't correlate with the amount of oxygen that their brain was, was receiving at the time of the experience. And In fact, if anything, the oxygen might be a little greater, suggesting that perhaps that helps Remember the experience. Age doesn't seem to be a a factor. Um, children as well as old adults will have them. Um, gender doesn't make a difference, and they and they really cut across many cultures. Um, so there is a there is no there ha- heretofore haven't been readily identifiable factors to help give us some clue as to
1: what the brain is doing during these experiences okay. okay before we leave the cultures end of it i found that aspect of your book very interesting there there does seem to be some cultural differences there are you know standard uh, kinds of things but but explain unpack that what uh, cultural differences what kind of cultural differences did you find
0: well um i didn't exa- i relied on the literature for this um as we really confined our our subject population to north america because we wanted people to have uh, essentially the same cultural experience and so we did that intentionally um but I, you know i think of near death experiences a little bit like hunger you know, human species throughout the world experience hunger. You know, and they and they express hunger differently. They satisfy hunger differently. And yet it's the same core biologic force and drive. And and even if we could understand, you know, how cultures satisfy this biologic need of food, it wouldn't tell us how the stomach is working. The biochemistry, the intestines, or the liver. So, looking at shared experiences can only tell us so much about the biology behind them.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to come back to shared experiences because Moody is using that differently now, uh, uh, kind of like he coined NDE than I think you mean in this context. But here's where I was going. You you did look at the literature. You did review some of the literature, and you did point out cultural differences in your book. Last night, for example, um, on Coast to Coast, uh, George Newry interviewed uh, Kevin Malarkey, interesting name but uh uh, his, his son alex uh experienced what they described as an internal decapitation and uh as a result of an automobile wreck and uh he went on to to go to heaven meet the angels and uh and explain and describe that entire process you know now This is a young person, obviously from a Christian background, but you found that, or or the literature you covered shows that the expectation from a different culture leads to a different kind of, I'll I'll throw this in, in scare quotes uh, to use your terms, satisfaction of appetite. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that
0: we do rely on our life experiences and I think our, um, our life experiences and culture do color the experience, the near-death experience. I think it shouldn't be surprising for two, you know, for one reason, and that is this. If you are in danger, evolutionarily, you know, from before, you know, over evolution and time, um, the memory circuits should be activated. The memory pathways should be activated because if you're facing danger, you want to do two things. One, you want to remember what may have helped you get out of danger in the past. It may help you again. And two, if you should survive, you will want to know what helped you survive. So there's a very strong motivation for the brain to, to access memory during times of danger, and life experiences, like life passing before your eyes as one is falling, and culture, I think, tap, tap into that. And um, I think uh, probably one way of uh, graphically illustrating that is actually Dr. Moody. He wrote a book um, about uh, people citing Elvis Presley during their near-death experiences. Right. I don't think that citing Elvis will cross many cultural barriers. You know, certainly, I don't expect it to be happening in those cultures where Elvis was um, never heard.
1: Right. Okay. Let's. Let, let me ask this then. Let's. Let's just keep dealing with objections. Uh, is it possible that there is a marriage between? the physical and the metaphysical. I mean, you you find a biological operation uh, in in the brain that may underlie these experiences, but at the same time, there really is an out-of-body. I mean, you heard the setup piece. Dr. John Lerma finds a coin uh, on top of medical equipment that you could not see from the ground but was seen from someone in a supine position being rolled away in a gurney is that possible
0: well it is not possible neurologically and and i i must eldon um point out that the verification of these things after the fact is a very difficult thing to do um and uh and i think that um there has I think that it, so it makes it difficult for a neurologist or myself speak to them because there's so many ways in which the inter, um, the memory um, can be colored for that experience and in very subtle and powerful ways. I can say that that um, so I, I think that 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 is it, the verification part of that is really where the devil in those details lies.
1: And All right. So so there we have, you know, a witness testimony. And the witness comes into the courtroom. And he happens to be a Dr. John Lermer, an emergency physician. And he says, this is what happened. And we have to decide, do we take his word or don't we take his word? That's uh-huh. what you're saying. Um,
0: Yeah, I'm pointing out that eyewitness testimony has been wrong on many occasions. In fact, um, the DNA evidence in the Innocence Project has been one good example to show you, to show how people can be so adamantly um, correct and yet
1: be wrong. Yeah, I I have some direct experience there. I specialized in criminalistics uh that's what i use my education for but let's let's go on again we get back to you're either going to accept the witness's testimony or you're going to reject it because it's a subjective kind of matter and and there isn't but how about then i have a friend uh uh, Diane Archangel, who had her own NDE. Now, she's, she is very involved, and in, uh, she's a professional hospice care, uh, health care provider. She went on the, the Geraldo show uh, back in the 80s uh, when it was with NBC because of images that she saw in her NDE, and those images were of the Twin Towers falling. Now, she she told me that she tried to to say so on the air, but Geraldo cut her off and basically then later told her it was because he could have caused some panic among the masses. Um, again, are we back to eyewitness testimony here? We just uh, these forward visions that seem to be common, some of which are obviously they don't always come true. The, the so-called prophecies, but some of which do. Is it is it random chance? Where are you? on that issue, now not as a neurologist, because this isn't a neurological question, but as the human being, the philosopher, uh, the fan of William James, I've got to get that one in there, because it was William James who said, you know, we only need one one white crow, right, Dr. Nelson? Where are you with respect to that as a person?
0: I I am squirreling William James' camp here, and and, um, William James and i um both believe in unseen worlds and and there are worlds that i don't understand and completely unaware of and james spent a great deal of his career exploring those you know with a uh, with a wide open mind um but at the same time he was a scientist and didn't dis- dismiss and discard um what uh he could understand with the world around him in scientific terms and, and I'm very much of that ilk as well. Um, I do think there's unexplained things happening to us all the time. I'm, most of the universe is composed of dark energy and matter that we really, you know, understand very little about. So I, I certainly um, fall into uh, William James's camp here. And uh, I, I think... Uh, we have to acknowledge fully, you know, the limitations of what we can now.
1: All right. Well, you know, listen, I'm in your camp 100 percent. Let's put it that way. Uh, Are you familiar with the Pam Reynolds case? That seems to be one of the more, you know, uh, outstanding pieces of evidence. Do you know about this case?
0: Oh, I know. The Pam Reynolds case very well, actually, and although I did not have the opportunity to examine her medical records, certainly enough of this case has been written that um, I can draw some conclusions about. First, let me um, state that um, I have spent untold hours over the last 25 or 30 years in the operating room monitoring patients, um, not exactly like Pam, but certainly other patients with neurologic conditions. So I'm very aware of making recordings um, during the operating room. Um, in fact, I've written scientific papers on this fact. So I, I know mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of personal experience with that. But what Pam had, and, and I think she illustrates quite well, are two things. One is the fact that um, she was awake and nobody knew it just like Jan. Um, they're uh, awake and conscious during surgery. Now, fortunately, this happens only a couple percentage um, or less um, throughout the country. It's a very unusual thing, but it's known, very well recognized um, by anesthesiologists. Secondly, um, when did she have these experiences? And when you when you ask that, there's no direct marker of when she had them, and in fact, um, it's you know she had a great deal of her experiences. In fact, I can find nothing that can't be explained by her experiences happening before her brain was put to fully asleep. So the timing is everything in the Pans Reynolds case, you know, and I think that the extraordinary claim that she was. Conscious with a with a uh, flat, um, non functioning brain is an extraordinary claim, and unfortunately, the evidence is not extraordinarily in support of that.
1: All right. So, you, you, as far as you're concerned, okay. I, I think that's good enough. Uh, that is, as you know, considered to be one of the the hallmark pieces of evidence um that flat brain wave. there are a number of other cases like that uh that we could take up but i think you've given us a, a an overall view of it uh some of my scientific uh my scientist friends had questions for you and unfortunately i'm not going to get them Uh, But I think one of them I'm going to cover real quick, like Dr. Rupert Sheldrake said he'd like to ask you, is the scientific rationality associated with characteristic brain scans? Would you prove that it is nothing but part of our biology? And obviously you've answered that question, no. Uh, the fact that the biology explains the event does not mean that these events don't have meaning. And, and that's the bottom line. Is that correct, sir?
0: I think that's right. I mean, for example, as I, as I, I look Quickly. at you um, right now, I can see my glasses, you know, and, but that doesn't mean my glasses don't exist, but I can detect the brain activity um, if it were de- properly done, the brain activity could be detected if I see my glasses.
1: Right, and, and conversely, just because we see it doesn't mean that there's some ontological existence. All right. Well, I, unfortunately, we've come to the end of another hour of provocative enlightenment. Our guest today has been Dr. Kevin Nelson. The book, "The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain," is a must in my book. Go get the book. Read the book. Follow the arguments. If you do have an open mind, if you are a genuine skeptic, you truly want to know, this is a great read. All right, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.